If we're to turn in your Bibles this morning to the beginning of the New Testament, the first chapter of Matthew, that's where we're going to, where we're going to be today. Waiting for the Savior to come was a long wait, but he came exactly as God has promised. So when you have faith in the reliability of God, when you believe that what he says is true and you can bank on it, you can live your life on it, then you're willing to wait. And I would encourage you to often meditate on the promises of God because those promises are things you can count on. Think about how little you can count on today, how few people you can actually trust, um, how often your expectations are crushed and, and are changed from what you expected. Well, God made his first promise of the coming Savior clear back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. So they waited, and they waited, and they waited. Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. The offspring of the woman, the Savior of the world, had not yet come. Another 726 years passed. That made it 1,656 years since creation, and the Savior still hadn't come. Instead, what came was a worldwide flood, judging the sins of mankind, and all but eight people, the family of Noah, perished in the waters. Would God make good on his promise still? It was another 400 years or so before Abraham showed up, and sure enough, God made the promise again, in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. About a thousand more years passed, and God promised King David that his offspring would sit on his throne and reign forever. And the question was, when? How long, O Lord, do we have to wait? 400 years later, Judah was taken into a captivity in Babylon. Israel had already gone, the northern tribes, into Assyria. After 70 years, Judah was back in the land, but still waiting. God promised through Malachi, the final prophet, that the Savior was still coming. And then there was 400 years of complete silence from God nothing. Suddenly, just as God promised, the Messiah was here, born in a manger, heralded by angels, worshiped by shepherds. After all those years of he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and waiting, and waiting, and waiting, finally, finally he's here. And that's essentially what Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 1. He's here, the arrival of the God-man Savior. If you'll follow with me as I read from Matthew 1, we'll read the entire chapter. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah of Tamar, by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. 
and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name. Jesus. Three things we're going to look at this morning from this chapter 1 of Matthew. We're going to look in verses 1 through 17 at the human ancestry of Jesus Christ. He is completely man. We're going to look secondly at the divine origin of Jesus Christ in 18 to 23. He is completely God. And third, we'll look at the saving mission of Jesus Christ as articulated in verses 21 to 23, the arrival of the God-man Savior. First, consider with me this human ancestry of Jesus Christ. It's very instructive. In the very first verse, we read these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this genealogy is going to tell us that we're not dealing with a fairy tale. We're dealing with real history. In a fairy tale, you don't need to know the details. It's just a good story. But real history 
needs historical details to nail down that it actually happened. Ours is a historical faith. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It's not merely a philosophy of life. It's not just a code of ethics. It's a history about what God has said and what God has done and what difference that makes for us in our lives. In the Jewish nation, your ancestry determined your land holdings in the promised land. Remember, it was divided among the tribes and then among the families of those tribes. In some cases, your ancestry would determine your vocation. Priests were to be from the tribe of Levi, and the kings were to come from the tribe of Judah. Jesus, the Messiah, is Jesus the anointed one. The New Testament word for that, the Greek word for that is Christ, Christos. So you have the Messiah, Mashiach in the Old Testament, uh, Christ, Christos in the New Testament. He's the anointed one, anointed by God for his mission, for his purpose, empowered by God, by the Spirit. And from Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament tells us through promises of God that this Messiah, this anointed one, this God-man Savior was coming to rescue us. But why was it so important that he be the son of David and son of Abraham, the way it leads off with this genealogy? Well, first off, he had to be a son of David to fulfill the promise God made to David in the Davidic covenant. Here it is in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, at first, we might be thinking as we start reading that history that, that God is just talking about Solomon, but, but the language suggests somebody greater than Solomon, and Solomon actually becomes a, a disappointment toward the end of his life. And so, here we have this covenant with David that there's going to be someone who sits on his throne that comes from his body that is going to actually rule forever. We go back further, he is the son of Abraham, and that recalls the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to Abraham. Initially, Abram, high father, changed his name to Abraham, father of a multitude, even when he didn't have any kids yet. Even when he had lived beyond the time where either he or his wife could have kids, God's making this promise. And then in Genesis 22, after Isaac has been born and And Abraham has showed faith in God, being willing to sacrifice him, and God rescues him. God says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you've obeyed obeyed my voice. There there wasn't uh, a people of Israel yet. They were yet to come. And God is promising to Abraham, not only a place, but a people, and not only a people, but a Savior that would come that would bless the entire world. He reiterated these same promises to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26, and again to Jacob in Genesis 28. This promise continued. His ancestry, the Messiah's ancestry, had to be right if he was going to fulfill the messianic promises of God. God faithfully keeps his word, and he still does. It's said that Herod the Great, who had descended from Esau, so he was an Edomite, was so sensitive about his ancestry, possibly 
making his own kingship illegitimate, that he had all the official records destroyed so that nobody could prove to have greater claim to the throne than he did. In fact, it was common, it is better to be his pig than his son in those days because he was so jealous of any threat to his throne. It's not surprising then, having heard of the birth of Jesus the Messiah, that Herod has all the babies of Bethlehem slaughtered in an effort to snuff out the infant Messiah. But he failed. Well, Matthew's given us kind of a, a bird's eye view of the genealogy. He's actually skipped over some of the generations to even it out to 14, 14, and 14. But there are some other important features of this genealogy of human, the human ancestry of Jesus that really help us understand who he is and what he came to do when he came to the earth. J.C. Ryle observes that Rehoboam and Ammon and Jeconiah all had godly fathers or grandfathers, but they were tremendously wicked men, and there's other wicked men in the genealogy like Manasseh. We're not saved by our family heritage. There has to be a heart change in us. Wicked men would have godly sons. Godly men would have wicked sons. They had to have a relationship with God themselves. Nobody's grandfathered in. And we know from biblical history that even the good men that are mentioned, even some of the greatest of them, were not by any means sinless. They needed a Savior too. Just recently I was listening through, as I listened through the Bible, I was reminded again of the story of Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings ever in Judah. And yet toward the end of his life, uh, God brought great distress into his life. He was taken with hooks and chains into Assyria and was imprisoned. And there he actually repented before God. And it was a genuine repentance. When he was restored to his kingship, he actually started reversing all the evil things that, that he had done. It showed the, the grace of God at work even in the wickedest of men. And by the way, I would say to you that, that maybe as you think about this new year, if it's not your habit to read through the Bible each year, or at least to listen through it. It's really easy to do it nowadays with listening through. Uh, it's really a good practice. You get a, you get a better read on what human history is actually like. I, I find that I fret less about the crises of the times and the, and the wicked people and the current time and the problems when I start hearing about all that's been going on for all these centuries. It's like, okay, you know, it could be way, way worse, and look how horrible this was. Look how hopeless this seemed. And yet God was at work through it all. Particularly striking is the, the curse that is leveled against Jeconiah. He's mentioned Jeconiah and his brethren. Um, he was actually the grandson of Josiah, the godly king. But in Jeremiah 22, uh, God says this because of this young man's evil. He was only 18 years old when he came to the throne. He didn't reign long before he was taken captive, but, but he was an evil man. And thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So here is Jeconiah in the ancestral line from David to the Messiah but God has declared that no descendant of Jeconiah will sit on the throne. How will this problem be solved? I mean, maybe the promise is null and void now, and maybe God can't fulfill his promise now. What was going to be the hope that Messiah would ever come? We'll actually get to that. You have Abraham, the father of the faith, David, the greatest king, Jeconiah, reminding us of national shame and tragedy in the Babylonian captivity. Another thing that's striking 
There's a mention of women in the genealogy. Usually women were not included in Jewish genealogies at all, but the women mentioned are significant. We read in verse 3 of Tamar. Tamar was a mother through Judah's incest with her. She was his daughter-in-law and was disguised. After God had struck dead Judah's first two sons for their wickedness, he held back, Judah held back giving his third son to her, and so she resorted to trickery and had her children. Rahab was the Canaanite prostitute who turned in faith to the God of Israel and hid the Israelite spies. You wouldn't expect to see a Canaanite in the line of the Messiah. And then there's Ruth, a whole book with her name on it, a Moabitess, though, descended from Lot's drunken incest with his daughters. He, they, they feared that after escaping Sodom, just before its destruction, that they would have no heir. And so they concocted this horrible scheme. Ruth was a descendant of that sin. And then there's reference to David as the father of Solomon by, and the name is not given, by the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba was properly identified as the wife of her husband Uriah, recalling David's adultery with her and his subsequent murder of her husband. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that that you read in the tabloids. That's the kind of stuff that just turns your stomach when you see it happen, even in our own day. And here, David, the man after God's own heart, engages in this level of wickedness. But it also recalls the Lord's mercy in giving the heir to the throne, Solomon, to David and Bathsheba after David's repentance. Solomon's name means peace, and he was nicknamed Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. And it shows that God is at work even in the worst of our sins, that he's recovering his people. And the final woman mentioned is Mary in Matthew 1, 16. <coughs> David, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. The of whom is feminine in form. So it refers to Mary and not Joseph. All the others before Joseph are called the father of the ones born to them, or in the, the older English, they begat them. But that language is not used here of Joseph. Joseph is the legal father of Jesus, but he's not his biological father. Jesus was virgin-born of Mary, who also descended from David. Remember when the angel told Mary what was going to happen. In Luke 1, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And that tells you that Mary's descended from that line. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke's genealogy differs some from Matthew's. It appears to be a record of Mary's lineage. She descended from David, but through David's son, Nathan. So here's the way that God worked it to bypass the curse on Jeconiah's offspring. Jesus was the legal heir through Joseph, descended from Jeconiah, but he was not his biological offspring. 
And when you look at details like that, you realize that no one but Jesus could ever fulfill all the details that the, the ancestry required for him to have legitimate claim to the everlasting throne of David. So, lest we get lost in the weeds, let's just back up here and let's, let's look at the overview. Who makes up the human ancestry of Jesus? Who are his people? Well, they are Jews and Gentiles. They are men and women. And they are all sinners in need of deliverance. Every one of those deviations in the genealogy reminds us of some really horrid kinds of sins that happen in this ancestral line of the Messiah. So if God brought the hope of the world through an ancestral line so full of so many problems, in what ways could God be at work in your life despite as many challenges? Now, I know, you know, the better you get to know people, the more you realize how many problems people bear, how many difficulties, um, things that you thought were going to turn out really well end up turning on their head. There are great disappointments. There are marriages that break up. There are wrongs and hurts. There's, there's all kinds of awful things that happen to, to us even when we least expect it. And I think sometimes people throw in the towel and they say, well, God, God's not reliable. How could, how could God allow this? How could God do this? Well, if you look at this history, you realize that these kinds of awful things were happening all along. Because of the curse of sin, because of its effect on the human race, these are happening all along. But none of it could stop the promises of God from being fulfilled. None of it. Whatever's happening in your life will not, cannot thwart the power of God to do what he's promised to do. You, you can count on it. And it doesn't mean that you always feel good. It doesn't mean that you always feel hopeful. But know this, God will not lie, and God will do every last thing that he promised. And since God's messianic promises were fulfilled, despite how impossible they may have seen, like that curse on Jeconiah, in what ways can you exercise your faith today in his promises that are yet to be fulfilled. I don't know where you are in your particular walk, your Christian walk, but there are seasons um, that we hit where our faith stumbles and, and where our hearts wander and where we're, we're just not sure whether it's worth it anymore. And we're just not sure it can possibly turn out well. And I would remind you, as you look at this historical record, and, and the Bible is, is just very frank about what happened. You can go back and read through the Old Testament, very frank about the things that happened. And God still got it done. Look, if the sinfulness of the human race made it impossible for God to save the human race, then God's not God, and salvation's not salvation. I mean, the point of it is that we're sinners in need of rescue. So if our sin stands in the way of rescue, then there is no gospel. But God is at work, and God continues to be at work in the history of man because there are still more promises to be fulfilled, and you can count on it. So that's the human ancestry of Jesus. What about the divine origin of Jesus Christ? We read in verse 18, now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, 
She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, he was a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame. You know, there are those that like to keep the rules and are really hard on people, and, and they don't have much compassion. He's both righteous and compassionate. He doesn't want to shame her publicly. He's unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, he's not going to do this just haphazardly, just off the cuff. He's actually thinking through this. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That's the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you look at that name, Emmanuel, the very first part, the M, is with, the Manu is us, and the L is God. So it actually reads, with us, God, and you would put an exclamation point. God is actually here. Now, betrothal is not something we do in our culture. It was actually much more than an engagement. It was a legally binding covenant that only a legal divorce could break. It usually lasted about a year, during which the couple belonged to one another, but did not live together yet as husband and wife. And so it was during that period of time, we read in verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Not a Roman soldier, not Joseph. He was a just man, but from the Holy Spirit. By the way, how does God produce life? Well, he spoke the universe into being. All he has to do is speak. So this doesn't have to be some mythological kind of thing like you read in in the Greek mythologies. In Matthew 1, verse 20, the second part of the verse, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, to 23, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Who's the father of Jesus? God is you think about it, the first son of promise given to Abraham was a miracle. Isaac, Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children, but Isaac was born anyway. God's promise of this coming deliverer seemed completely impossible. So God did a miracle to have them have a child, Isaac. His name is Laughter. God had to intervene. Nothing's impossible with God. The ultimate son of promise was born miraculously as well, born of a virgin, just as Isaiah the prophet had foretold 700 years earlier. Jesus was truly with us God. God intervened. Nothing's impossible with God. Our sin has alienated us from God. The human race has for all history ever since driven, being driven out of the Garden of Eden had this deep need to recover what was lost. We've been exiles from Eden, but more than that, exiles from God. 
God's promise to Adam and Eve in the garden of the coming deliverer for the human race hinted at what he was going to do. The Savior who had crushed the serpent's head would be the offspring or seed, not of Adam, but of the woman. Now, usually that language is used only of men. The first Adam had no human father, and neither did Jesus the Messiah. He is the second Adam, the one to save the human race. He is the Son of God and always has been. God himself intervened. I mean, you could well ask, after having looked at the human ancestry of Jesus, how is it even possible that there could be a recovery from all this mess? Well, the only recovery possible has to be a miracle. The only recovery possible has to be God himself. The Messiah couldn't just be a man. He had to be God as well. And the Old Testament bears testimony to that. In Luke 1, 34 to 35, when the angel told Mary what was about to happen, she said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? You know, it's not like, oh, well, they lived 2,000 years ago. They didn't know how babies were made. Come on. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit, look how consistent this testimony is, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And by holy, sinless. He was not a sinner by birth, he was not a sinner by choice. He never sinned, ever. He had to be perfect so that he could take our sin on himself and pay for it without having to pay for his own. John's gospel underscores his preexistence as God. In John 1, we read it this morning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, okay, so who are we talking about, John? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. And we have seen, we've closely observed his glory, his shining splendor, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's one thing for you to hear about it secondhand. It's another thing for somebody who spent three and a half years tracking with Jesus, spending 24-7 with him, watching him do the things that he did, say the things that he said, watching the whole thing, death and resurrection, and, and then a subsequent mis, uh, ministry after that. It's another thing when someone who knows Jesus that well says, that's not just an ordinary human being. He's also God. He is the unique son of God. His origin is divine. Not just human ancestry, but divine origin. And so we read this testimony, and this is not isolated to Matthew or to Luke, uh, or to the epistles. It's also in the Old Testament as well. When we read these, this testimony, what unhistorical versions of Jesus rob him of his deity? You know, the search for the historical Jesus usually means we're going to ignore the primary records and we're going to make it up from a naturalistic standpoint. We're going to explain it away. Well, then you've got a fictitious Jesus. It's a fictitious Jesus if all you think is that he was a human being who was an extraordinarily good man. No good man says the kinds of things he said. Because he, he received worship and he called for it. And he claimed to be God. We've seen this in our study of the book of John. Everybody that knew him well 
saw that he was God. They believed in him. So if I say I believe in Jesus, well, which Jesus are you believing in, the historical one or the one that we're making up 2,000 years later? And it's really important that he be who he is. I mean, in what ways does human history show that the deliverance we need most must come from God and that human beings can't do it on their own? And, and, the, and the history of the world since the birth of Jesus has demonstrated this. No matter how educated we are, no matter what our technology, no matter what our military power, economic power, no matter how much, many philosophers, no matter what our giftedness, we can't get past the problem of our sin and our death and, and our alienation from God. Isn't it obvious we need God? So how does knowing that God himself has already stepped into human history to save us, give you confidence that Jesus cannot fail in his mission. The Bible indicates that he's not done yet. You say, well, I became, you know, I, I trusted in this, and look, it's still, things are still a mess. I, I, I trusted in Jesus, but look, there's still so many problems in the world. Well, if you had just read your Bible, you would know that. The Bible is no, no fairy tale. The Bible is not some Pollyanna book that, that says, oh, you know, everything's pretty in roses. The, the Bible, I mean, it's like brutally frank and at the same time irrepressibly hopeful, calling us to trust in a God who intervenes in human history. So we see the divine origin of Jesus, and then finally we see the saving mission of Jesus Christ. And the human ancestry, the divine origin are both necessary to this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Jesus was actually a very common name. It is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. And it means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. And so call his name Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Who is the Savior? Yahweh is the Savior. Call him Yahweh saves. Jesus' very name testifies to his deity that he and Yahweh are one, and he will save his people. He will rescue them. He will deliver them. He will heal them from their sin plague, and he will, it will be his people that he saves, Jews and Gentile, male and female, and sinners all from their sins. Now, people if they haven't been exposed much to what the Bible teaches, they, they kind of say, they kind of maybe smirk when you say sins. Well, you, you know, we're sins, you know. Um, no big deal. Well, it's actually a stunning declaration because our sin is more than our deeds and our words. doesn't mean, okay, he's going to help them turn over a new leaf and do better. He's going to teach them new disciplines. Actually, our sin includes our thoughts and even our desires. In other words, our sin is coming from who we are. So how do I get rid of my sin without getting rid of me? Only God can do that. And what's worse is our sin has earned for us great sorrow and suffering and death and condemnation. It's a fact. 
the effect of my sin is devastating. And, and from a human standpoint, it's inescapable. So to find someone who can actually rescue me from my sin is stunning. You know, we all tend to get more upset about other people's sins than our own, but when we come under the guilt of our own sin, when we realize how bad we can actually be, and I don't know that we actually know that completely, but when we get a little glimpse of it, it, it it's, throws us into despair. This Savior is a deliverer from sin. Who can possibly deliver us from sin that is a part of who we are? Every part of us infected with it, our mind, our emotions, our body, our will, we're natural-born sinners. And, and as such, every human being ever but Jesus chooses to sin over and over again. Our sin's not just what we've done, but what we should have done. I find myself, self-condemnation is like all the stuff I should have done that I haven't done. If I'm not rescued from my sin, if I'm not rescued from the condemnation it brings and from the pain and the sorrow that it brings and the way it twists my very soul and the way it ruins my destiny, if I'm not saved from my sin, then it's no real salvation. It's no real deliverance. I mean, how many people have, had, have, have made all gobs of money and gobs of fame and have gobs of talent and they're still hopelessly unhappy because they know something is drastically wrong and twisted inside them and in their world. We need a savior from sin. We need God to make the rescue. There have been saviors who delivered people from military threats, who raised them up from economic poverty. Some have brought education and health care, but no one except Jesus can deliver us from the condemnation and power of our sin, along with the death penalty that goes with it. Nobody can do that but Jesus. Because nobody but a man could take our place, a human being. Nobody but God could break the power of our sin and death. And nobody but Jesus can make us joint heirs with him of an eternal inheritance that includes our own sinless immortality in a universe made perfect again. Nobody can do that but Jesus, the God, man, Savior. Now, as you get to know people and you watch our world and you look at what people talk about and what they care about, they'll choose a lot of other ways of dealing with the calamities of life and trying to find hope. So what are some of the other saviors people look to for deliverance? You know, as you look at those, you realize that, that all of them fall far short of what we actually need. I mean, really, who cares how much money you have, how much good health you have, uh, how much influence you have, how famous you are, if in 100 years from now you're dead anyway, and in another 100 years nobody even knows your name. We need a God who will rescue us completely. We need a God who will reconcile us to him completely. And that God is the God-man Jesus. So during this time of the holidays, what friends or family or acquaintances can you introduce to Jesus? 
as the Savior they most need. You know, you start asking people questions, um, at least in this part of the country, they'll, they'll tell you a lot about their lives. You go to a restaurant, start asking the waitress and, uh, or the waiter, just, you know, whoever's serving, you, you find out all kinds of things about their lives, and, and almost everybody is dealing with some form of trouble or not. But I can say this, that every single one of them need this Savior. And so let us find ways to, to actually interface with them in a faithful way. You know, we saw here Joseph's response to this revelation, and it really gives us insight to what our own response should be. In verses 24 to 25, we read, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We see in this capstone to the chapter, Joseph's obedience. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took, he took his wife. You know, you say, Joseph, you're crazy. This has never happened before. He, he took his wife. And, and it led to self-denial. He knew her not till she had given birth because it was to be a virgin-born Savior. He had legal right to be with his wife the way any husband should be with his wife because now he was not just betrothed but was legally married. But he knew her not, so he had given birth. And why did he do all that? I think the last thing tells us why. Faith. Faith. And he called his name Jesus. He believed the message from God through the angel that this was the promised Savior of the world. And he was willing, therefore, to obey. He was willing, therefore, to deny himself. And it struck me as I looked at that that that, that is really the classic response. When we believe this message of the coming Savior, we're willing to deny ourselves. We're willing to, to live for God. We're willing not to just live after our own appetites. We're willing to say no to things that maybe we might even have a right to do, but we don't do them for the sake of the gospel. And it's a life of faith as well, continuing to trust God. What is your response to the revelation of Jesus Christ recorded here? You know, there's everything in chapter 1 of Matthew to, to give you every reason, every confidence to put your full faith in Jesus Christ and that this is absolutely so. And, and if, if your own heart says no to that, you really need to ask yourself what it is you want. What it is that's holding you back. And don't just give an intellectual answer because it's not intellectualism that's keeping you back. There's plenty of evidence here. There's something else that you want more, and I would just implore you, I would implore you to look for a Savior who can save you to the uttermost, not for some half measure. Don't be satisfied with less. Trust in Jesus, the God-man Savior. Thank God. He is here, and he is coming back. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and 
its clarity, its power, the hope that it gives us. And God, I pray that our own hearts will yield to it. I pray that you would break the natural-born rebellion we have in our hearts to bowing the knee to God and His Word, to being willing to be rescued rather than pursuing our sin. And Lord, I pray that even this day and this Christmas season, you might, you might beget more children of God through Jesus, people who, through faith in Him, are given the right to be called children of God and are granted eternal life. For it's in Christ's name we pray.